The Big Ideas TXST podcast is brought to you by Next Is Now. For more information, visit www.txstate.edu. Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University. I'm your host, Dan Seed from the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. This month, we're joined by one of my SJMC colleagues, Dale Blasingame. Dale is an assistant professor of practice in the Digital Media Innovations Program. Dale teaches courses that introduce students to different aspects of how technology is changing journalism, media, and marketing. In 2017, he received a grant to develop the School of Journalism and Mass Communication's first Study in America course, where he took students to do similar work in national parks. And that's why Dale is joining us for this month's episode. Dale, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, I appreciate y'all having me. So before we get into the parks class, let's introduce you a bit more to the audience. I do think that you're our first guest that's a Texas State alum as both an undergraduate and graduate student. And before joining the faculty, you were an Emmy award-winning TV news producer. What drew you to television news first as a career? And then what led you to making that switch to digital media and joining the faculty here? Yeah, I I wasn't a a TV person coming out of college. I actually came to Texas State to be a coach. I had dreams of playing in the NBA and then I stopped growing at six foot two and that kind of killed those dreams. And so I I thought to myself, well, if I I can't play, then I guess I could coach. And uh, I realized pretty quickly that coaching probably wasn't going to be a good career choice for me. And so I went home after my freshman year of college, this would have been 1996, I guess. And I was working overnights at a cotton gin. Uh, I was working 12 hour shifts, seven days a week for the entire summer, making $5 an hour working at this cotton gin. And the only thing I had in there, I was in an office by myself weighing cotton bales all night. And the only thing I had was an AM radio and sports radio had kind of just kicked off at that point in, in some sort of national way. And so I was listening to these sports radio hosts like Bob Kemp, who was an old curmudgeon who would just sit there and complain about sports all day, uh, all night in my case. And I, thought, man, I would, I'd really love to talk about sports, I guess. If I can't play it or coach it, I guess I could talk about it. And so that's when I made the switch to SJMC. And I, I really had zero intention of ever working in TV. I just purely wanted to be a radio person. And I remember even telling Dr. Tim England, who was my professor and is still one of our colleagues, I remember telling him, like, I shouldn't have to take your TV news class. I'm never going to work in TV. So I ended up being totally behind the scenes that semester. I think I did one story about football games and uh, worked in radio for a year and got an offer from uh, the NBC station in San Antonio. Their anchor uh, really enjoyed my uh, newscasts and said he liked my writing style. He listened to me every morning on the way in and they asked if I would come be a producer for them. And I ended up staying there for nine years. I have news nightmares sometimes. I had a news nightmare this morning. So that's the only reason why I, I mentioned that. Uh, you know, I, I knew I'm I wasn't I'm, long. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yeah. That that happens too. Yeah. And they sound ridiculous. I was trying to explain to my girlfriend what a news nightmare is. And they just don't make sense because they don't sound bad. But when you're in them, they're horrible. So I woke up at 4.30 this morning in the midst of a news nightmare. 
I knew I wasn't going to be long for the profession. I'd always wanted to be a teacher in some way. I think going back to those coaching days, I, I was in my ninth year and Twitter was just really starting to become a thing. And it makes me sound so old to uh, say that, but you know, we weren't really utilizing Twitter in a way that I thought a lot of our competition was, and it was really frustrating. And so I quit and went to grad school to try and study that. And that, that kind of led me to where I am today. It was, it was that idea. And then it was attending South by Southwest, honestly, that kind of turned my whole career and life around one, one day at South by Southwest back in, that would have been 2011 or 2012. And I remember telling Dr. Cindy Royal, who's a colleague of ours, who was leading my grad class at the time. And I remember saying like, this changes everything. Yeah, it's kind of been all systems go from there in terms of pure focus on digital. And those of us that know you know, just as a transition here into the, the meat of what our interview is about, those of us that know you know that you're passionate about the outdoors. You're very passionate about digital media journalism, but you're really, that's your... I think that most people around here would know you for is your passion for the outdoors. Where does that love come from and, and what draws you to it? I was going through a really bad breakup right around the time I started at Texas State. I'm, I'm about to go into my 10th year here, which again makes me feel quite old. And I was going through a really bad breakup. Honestly, had zero connection to the outdoors. My parents used to take us camping when I was little we spent quite a bit of time on the Frio River and, and a couple of other places, but that never translated. I mean, I, I tubed the river all the time when I was in college, like, you know, everyone else does, but I wasn't a parks guy. I wasn't a hiking guy, uh, anything like that, and was in the middle of this breakup. And my brother-in-law, who at the time was trying to visit every national park property in the country, was like, hey, come on, we're going to go somewhere. And he, they just wanted to get me out of the house uh, more than anything. So we went to Santa Fe that weekend and we went to Bandelier National Monument. I really just loved it. I just loved being outside. I don't know what it was that kind of triggered whatever serotonin or endorphins in my brain. I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I'm probably butchering those medical terms. But whatever it was, it, it triggered something. And I got home and... A couple of other things happened. I went to a wedding in Big Bend and that seeing Big Bend, especially at night, I've always been kind of fascinated by the night sky. And so seeing the Milky Way with the naked eye for the first time is just a, a moment I'll never forget. And as we got toward the end of the semester, I decided to take a road trip. I had a dream, again, going back to dreams. I had a, I had a dream about driving around the country and I, I hate driving or I hated driving at the time. And I was always kind of codependent on whoever I was dating or, you know, my friends or my family. And so the idea of doing this solo road trip was super foreign to me. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm just going to do it. I just bought a Prius. So that helped uh, in terms of, you know, gas mileage and things like that. And so I drove up to Montana and back, stopped at, you know, a million places along the way, Mount Rushmore, Yellowstone, Tetons, the Rocky Mountains, and that really kind of cemented it. When I got home, I was in a bit of a funk. I tend to go into funks when I get back from road trips uh, now, especially, but this, this was my first, my first funk. My girlfriend at the time said, man, get outside. Like you're driving me crazy and you're moping. And she's like, there's parks all around here. Go to one of them. 
And so I, I drove over to Hamilton Pool and they were full. And the woman who was telling everyone to go home said, hey, well, Pernell's Falls State Park is right down the road. Why don't you go there? And so I drove to Pernell's Falls and the ranger asked me if I was coming in for the day. And I said, yes. And he goes, well, do you want to pay the one day or do you just want to buy a state parks pass? And I said, well, how many parks are there? And he said, ah, there's 90 something. And I said, okay, I'm going to do them all in one year. And he just looked at me and rolled his eyes and I bought the state parks pass. I wish I had a better genesis for that story because it literally was that inane or that innocuous, but that, that really was what started it. And from that day, I tell people I did them. I did all 95 in one year. It actually took me 367 days. Uh, we had a flood that year and a couple of the parks closed. And so it took me a couple of extra days to knock out some of the Dallas parks that were closed. But yeah, knocked out all 95. And then um, I got my dog, Lucy, halfway through that journey. She and I have since finished all the parks that she missed. So she's now, I'm the only person to do all 95 in one year. There's a couple of other people who've done all 95. A lot of Texas Parks and Wildlife folks. Lucy's the only dog to do all 95. And Texas Parks and Wildlife has since transferred some of the parks to other uh, regulating agencies. And so we've been guaranteed to never have our record be broken because there's not 95 parks anymore. I think there's 87 now. So no one will be able to uh, accomplish what we did in that kind of magical year. And now I'm in the process of visiting all 423 national park properties. And I, I just counted the other day, I think I'm at 220 right now. So I've done 43 of the 63 full national parks and 220 of the of the national park properties, which count things like battlefields and monuments and, and stuff like that. So between all this, this travel that you do and the way that you kind of stumbled into this love of the outdoors and love of parks combined with your background in journalism, your love of social media and all that, that I would imagine was the genesis for the first version of this class, which took place here in Texas and then has since expanded to the national parks. What made you want to do this? Again, it was a totally random moment. I started writing for Texas Parks and Wildlife Magazine when I finished my journeys around Texas. And I was doing monthly listicles for them, basically, like, you know, five best parks for kids, 10 best parks for hiking, stuff like that. And I was in a meeting at, at TPWD headquarters. We were, I remember standing at this big standing desk and the editors were all there and the publisher and one of the guys just turned to me and said, we should teach class together. And I said, yes, I don't know what that means, but yes. And I got home and I started texting people, texting Dr. Oscom and, and Kim Fox and a couple other people who I thought might be able to point me in that right direction and said, I have no idea how to do this, but yes, I really want to do this. And it turned into a, a one hour short course that first year called Mobile Storytelling in the Parks. And we took, I believe, 15 students to Garner State Park for the weekend. They did essentially short documentaries only using their phones. You know, they had to go out and interview people and, and do things like that. And so it's crazy how much from that one little weekend carried over to everything else. Kim ended up joining us out there just because Kim loves to plan and she's kind of like a den mom. She knew that the kids were not going to be in good hands with just me alone out there. Um, and so uh, just because my brain, <laughs> I, I just will go off on a random hike and leave everyone. Uh, anyways, I've gotten a lot better with that. 
but at the time I think Kim knew I needed a lot of help. And so Kim joined us and Kim ended up getting the grant with me that turned it into a study in America program. I met Kai Harkey during that event. He's now the head of interpretation at Texas Parks and Wildlife, but he was kind of the genesis from the Texas Parks and Wildlife side of, of making this a reality. Tyler Priest was a, a very young uh, head of the ambassadors program at that time. He went on to become a park ranger and just recently quit and hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, all 3,200 miles of it from, Can from Mexico to Canada. Wow. And is, I believe, now getting ready to hike the Continental Divide Trail. So out of that one weekend, I just, so many great connections and ideas were generated. We did it again. Um, we took students to Bastrop the next time, same basic setup. And then it was that point that Kim emailed me and, and said, hey, distance and extended learning is doing these little grants to try and take ideas into study in America programs. And, and study in America is much like study abroad, but you stay in the United States. And she was like, you're program would make total sense. And I could teach one of my classes on the, on the trip as well. And so we applied for and got one of those grants. And we, we started the program as a, a basically an epic road trip. The first year we took students to Big Bend and a bunch of state parks out in West Texas. And we took them to Carlsbad Cavern and White Sands, which is now a national park at the time it was a national monument. Second year, we drove out to the Grand Canyon and Zion and Great Sand Dunes. Kim had to step aside for some family. Her daughter was graduating that summer and she couldn't miss that. And so Professor Jessica James now has taken on that role. And we went to Yosemite the, the last year that we had this, which I guess would have been 2019, which seems like a lifetime ago now uh, with everything that's happened since then. But we flew for the first time that year. I, I knew we needed to kind of change up the, the model without Kim there to handle all the logistics of it. So we flew and had, uh, we, we kind of glamped in, in Yosemite's Half Dome Village. And then in 2020, we were supposed to go to Olympic National Park in Washington State. Uh, but COVID happened. COVID canceled in 2021 as well. I lost both my parents and really needed to take a summer away to try and figure my life out. And so we didn't do it last year, even though we probably could have, and I needed a, a summer again this year. And so we're coming back in 2023 and really excited. I mean, it, it's my favorite thing that I do in my profession, and it does perfectly marry what I'm passionate about in all areas. Um, getting to teach the stuff I'm passionate about, and I'm getting to teach it in a setting that I'm passionate about. And I, I take a lot of time picking the locations because I want the experience to matter for students, but I also want it to matter in the bigger scheme of, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, a spiritual person and I want, I want that connection with the outdoors. I don't want to just take them to a park that doesn't matter to any, to me or to, you know, the students. I, I want them to, to feel that impact that the parks and the outdoors can have because I know what it's done for my life. I want to at least provide that opportunity for the students. It's not always going to happen, but it has happened. I've had several students change their career paths after this. Some have gone on to intern with outdoor agencies and work for outdoor agencies. So I'm not saying that's the goal of it by any means, but I that connection to the outdoors really matters to me. And so we take quite a bit of time trying to figure out where we're going to go. What is it like for you when you see our students in that environment? Because I think for, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think for a lot of them, this is a new experience. 
Oh, we've had um, we've had students who have never been out of Texas before. I know in the Yosemite trip, we had a couple of students who had never been on an airplane before. Those are the moments I think really, you know, there's a couple of different ways to answer that question. One, Texas is so large and so varied that, you know, even if we were going something somewhere like Paladero Canyon, which we've taken students there as well, and Big Bend's. And even, you know, somewhere like Bastrop or, you know, somewhere that's super close to San Marcos, right? Bastrop's 40 miles away. But just seeing the different environments in those areas opens their eyes. And then when you take them somewhere they've only heard about or, you know, seen pictures of, I'll never forget. I, t- I tell this story and I, I don't do it justice. We were pulling up to the Grand Canyon for that first night. We had been on the road for several days and it was dusk. Sun had already set. It was getting kind of dark. Kim and I were kind of arguing (laughs) over what we needed to do. And Kim was like, no, we need to go straight to our hotel, check in, get everything settled. It was very Kim. And I was like, no, we need to go show them the Grand Canyon. It's the first night here. We need to show it to them. And we weren't arguing, but we were just going back and forth. I happened to be driving. So (laughs) uh, I kind of won that argument just by sheer brute force. We pulled up. And by the way, Kim has since said, you were right, I was wrong. And I'm not telling the story for that, but um, <laughs> I, I would agree that that was the right decision, whoever's idea it was. But we pulled up and there was no one there because the sun had already set and it was getting dark, you know, a little bit. And so the, the parking lots had kind of emptied. And so I remember just like driving straight through the parking lot, pulling right up to the overlook we got out and the, one of the girls on the trip who had been fairly reserved the whole way, she was kind of on her phone the whole time. We get out of the van and like five steps in, I just hear her bawling crying. And she just kept saying like, what is this? What is this? What is this? And they, I got worried because I thought something had happened to her, but she had just seen the Grand Canyon for the first time. And she was kind of like laugh crying, you know, like, I, what is this? I don't know what this yeah. is, you know? And, and one of our classmates came over and like hugged her and they just kind of stood there and looked at the Grand Canyon together for the first time. And it was just like, I get a little teary eyed talking yeah. about it even now. Like, I mean, that's the power of a program like this is sharing those experiences with students and, you know, yeah, the classwork is important and the, you know, the class structure and all that, but it's really those moments that I remember where, you know, like you've made an impact on a student's life. And I will say that student is now a flight attendant. Um, She, she had kind of talked about that. She wanted to be a flight attendant. I remember her like briefly. And so now she travels the world as her job. You know, she had never seen the Grand Canyon that night. And I got to witness, or I got to be a part of like what I imagine is her everyday life now, like she helps take people to all these places that they maybe have never been or going to have a life-changing vacation or experience at. And so I love those little kind of full circle moments like that. Yeah. And that's, that's the best part. That's the thing that I've always knowing about the class and, and what you guys do that I think is so cool is just the, the overall experience. Like you said, the classwork is important, but at the end of the day, right seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time and soaking that in is just so when we're in the parks and for this class you mentioned early on they were doing little documentary stories on the parks what what does that classwork entail and how does that help tie in with that parks experience well there are two classes so there's my class which is still the mobile storytelling in the park class and then professor Jessica James now teaches the feature writing class 
So in my class, they're they're still doing the kind of short form video documentary, purely using their phone and mobile technology to do that. So, you know, cheap tripods, microphones that connect to their phone, stuff like that. You know, we use some gimbal technology, but I found that students get way too over-reliant on gimbals. So I, I try to not introduce them as much as I used to. But for the most part, that's a big chunk of their project in my class. They're also then responsible for a certain amount of social media content. Again, I'm not, I have no expectations of like bringing a high-end camera or anything like that. I want them to realize phones, of course, these days now take pictures that are you know pretty close or at the same level as a high-end camera anyway. So I really want them to get creative with what they're thinking in terms of their possibilities with social. And so that that's the vast majority of the coursework in my class. I'm probably going to be changing that up a bit next year. I think I'm going to have them do two video stories and have them be shorter because we, we normally have them like three to five minutes. And I think we're going to be moving a lot next year, next summer, because we're kind of traveling quite a bit. We're not going to be staying in one place. So I think I'm going to lower the time and, and make them do a couple of them. But then the feature writing class is more of a traditional kind of magazine style journalism, right? Like travel journalism, where they're the vast majority of that class is finding a story and telling it from a written perspective. And it's, it's feature style writing. It's not the inverted pyramid news style writing. Um, they have a lot more leeway. They have a lot more freedom when it comes to the type of story they would tell and how they could tell it. And it is really interesting. You know, that's not my class to teach, but I I get to watch what the students do with the work in that class. There was a worry that they might focus purely on my class and not put as much effort into the feature writing class because my class requires all the shooting and all the editing time and stuff like that. And, and what we found is almost was the exact opposite. They would get so hooked on their feature stories. And it just so happens, it's not all of them, but a couple of them really got into their feature stories. And I had to remind them, hey, there's another class here as well. You need to uh, be doing this. But two examples in Yosemite, one of one of our students who's now Ashley Bowerman, who is now a news anchor in, in Alabama, she was very passionate about telling the story of female park rangers because the National Park Service has a diversity problem in terms of representation with park rangers, both from a race perspective and from a gender perspective. But Yosemite happens to be the one park where there is a majority of female park rangers and the head ranger is a female. And so she got really into this idea of, okay, what is Yosemite doing right that the other parks can learn from? And I think she interviewed every female park ranger at Yosemite as part of that story. Another one that kind of was a spontaneous spur of the moment idea, Audrey Garcia, when we were in Yosemite, ran into this, he's a professor at UCLA, I believe, uh, who was in a wheelchair and he was there with his whole family and she was just taken by this idea of what it's like to be accessibility or accessibly challenged at a national park, which is something the National Park Service is obviously continuing to work on today. Make sure attractions are as accessible as possible, making trails wheelchair friendly and stroller friendly and things like that. And she basically embedded herself with this family the entire week that we were there and she, we never saw her. She was like, all right, heading out at breakfast. I'm going to go meet them. She'd spend the whole day with them and we'd see her at dinner and, you know, she'd fill us in on everything they were able to do that day. And 
you know, seeing that, that again, that kind of passion of wanting to tell stories that actually mattered. That's what I would pitch to my students as well. Like, Hey, y'all have got the advantage of having great visuals, but I still want you to tell a story that matters. This isn't like some fluff piece on how cool the waterfalls are at Yosemite. Like you need to be telling a story that actually matters. And I will add that our classes have always been service learning classes as well. I'm, I'm a big proponent and part of the service learning program here at Texas State. I try to teach as many classes as possible in partnership with them. And what that means is you're partnering with an outside agency to do work for them as part of the class. And so how we make that work in the Study in America program is we partner with the friends agencies of the parks or the park itself or anything like that to turn over all the content we produce. So it's not just that the students are doing this for their own social channels. We're then turning it over to you know the friends of the Grand Canyon or the friends of Yosemite and giving them access to this content created by a demo that they are really, really wanting to reach. And so there's that level of kind of pressure put on their stories in both classes, knowing that potentially a you know pretty sizable audience could be seeing this outside of their own realm of friends and family. It's a great idea. It, it brings that real world experience for sure, mm. the way that you're describing how students are embedding and, and telling these stories journalistically, which is, a, as we know, as instructors, it's a wonderful experience to actually get out in the field and do this kind of stuff and to find those kind of stories. Again, we're joined by Dale Blasengame from the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Dale, uh, before we wrap up, and thank you again for being here, we're in summer. It's obscenely hot already, but this is the time of year when people, families are looking to do something, a day trip, a weekend trip. What are some of the highlights, I guess, in Texas for park trips, maybe for families or ones that people can go to and, and you don't need to have a ton of expertise to go to and you can enjoy a weekend or a day? What, where would you point people to? So it's always tricky in summer because it varies by the day. First thing I would say is make sure no matter where you're going, that you get a day pass reservation. That's something relatively new that Texas Parks and Wildlife started doing a couple of years, I believe it was two years ago. I hate seeing when, when people don't know that and then seeing them show up at the gate and wanting to just get in and there's no passes left. So do your due diligence and make sure you're getting reservations on the days and the places you're wanting to go. Just around here in central Texas, a couple of spots for summer immediately come to mind. You know, McKinney Falls is right here in our backyard. It's in Southeast Austin, featuring a lot of swimming opportunities. Blanco State Park, which is, you know, about an hour away, has a dam where you, you can go swimming and, and stuff like that. Colorado Bend State Park is usually one of my biggest recommendations for a couple of reasons. One, there's Spicewood Springs swimming area and the Colorado River goes through the park. I'm particularly attracted to Gorman Falls, which um, depending on the time of year, probably won't look like it in summer. But if you go in spring or fall, it kind of looks like you walked into this Amazon rainforest. It's a little tiny section, but it's a, it's a waterfall. I used to call it the hidden gem of Texas and Texas Parks and Wildlife told me to stop calling it that because I've written about it so much that it is no longer hidden. <laughs> so that, that, was a, that was a funny conversation I had with them one day. Outside of this general area, again, you know, with keeping the heat in mind, uh, my two favorite state parks, like it's not even close. My two favorite state parks are Paladero Canyon and Caprock Canyon, which are both up in the Panhandle, 
Paladero Canyon is about 10 miles south of Amarillo. Caprox is about 30 miles, or 45 miles northeast of Lubbock. Both of those parts look like the Grand Canyon. Um, Paladero is often called Texas's Grand Canyon. It's the second biggest canyon in the country. I'm really glad it's not, but I wouldn't be. I've always been kind of shocked that it never became a national park, that Texas was able to keep it as a, a state park because it has that potential to be a really busy national park if they had wanted to go that route. Of course, the trails there get really, really hot. I know just yesterday, the trail temperature at the lighthouse at Paladero was 133 degrees. So if you're going to any of these parks, hiking, leaving really early in the morning, you don't want to be out on the trail after you know, 10 or 11, uh, especially at Paladero and Cap Rocks, there's, there's no shade really. You're, you're kind of out amongst the canyon and you're down in the canyon, which makes the temperatures go up as well. Right. Dogs are obviously a consideration because again, that floor temp is going to hit, it kind of sneaks up on you where it's like, oh, it's only 75 this morning. It'll be fine. And then, you know, you're a mile or two miles in and all of a sudden it's already 95 and now you've got to make the trek back. So those are, you know, a couple of favorites, Big Bend, this is a great time to go to Big Bend, despite it being insanely hot. The crowds typically in the summer are, are fewer than they would be in spring or fall. That drive from Big Bend National Park to Big Bend Ranch State Park and beyond is one of my favorite drives in the entire country. It's known as River Road, goes along the Rio Grande. If you're looking for somewhere a little bit cooler, I don't know how much cooler it gets there, but Davis Mountains is up in in elevation and you can go to the McDonald Observatory at night. I love that area as well. And then there's always the coast. Texas has plenty of parks that are beaches that you can kind of get away from like, you know, just going to Corpus or going to South Padre Island. Padre Island National Seashore is in the Corpus Christi area. You have to drive an extra probably 20 miles down the island, but you pay, the crowds are smaller, the beaches are cleaner, those types of things. We've got Sea Rim, which is toward the Louisiana state line, which when I was there, my dog and I had the entire park to ourselves um, that day because it's, it's pretty isolated. So there's plenty of things to do. It's just a matter of the weather and being safe. I should mention one more, Lake Livingston, which is north of Houston, about an hour, giant lake, um, lots of swimming, you know, paddle boarding, all that type of stuff. But they have the towering pine trees and depending on the mosquitoes <laughs> that's one of the few parks where like you can hike in the shade and in the summer and be relatively safe again keeping in mind the temperature and stuff like that so I could talk for hours on that so I'll, I'm just going to stop there <laughs> because uh, it's one of my favorite things to talk about I love when people ask for recommendations so I'm going to go ahead and shut up but those are the first couple things that immediately popped to mind. Well, we can definitely sense your passion for it. We know that we know that you're passionate about it, that you love it. And we thank you again for joining us and for, you know, telling us about the storytelling in the parks class, study in America, and and giving some advice to folks of some places that they can try out this summer. So Dale, lastly, I know social media is your thing. You write about the parks. How can people follow you and keep up with you on your ventures and journeys? Sure. Yeah. Instagram is probably the easiest way. It's at Dale Blasting Game. Probably better follow is Lucy. Lucy's handle is Lucy and her leash. We share some of our adventures. I, I know you're trying to wrap up, but one, one last story. I've started, despite me teaching social media, I've tried really hard here lately to put my camera away and just enjoy the moment. 
So I don't post nearly as much as I used to, and that's intentional. I was at Lake Tahoe a couple of weeks ago and the sunset was spectacular. And I just took Lucy out and we just kind of sat on a park bench and watched the sunset. I didn't take my camera, I didn't take my phone. And that was a real special moment. And so I encourage people to do that because I think you, you get a little bit more out of that. Sounds crazy from someone who teaches a class where students have to use technology in the parks, but I do talk with them about that as well. But, you know, there are times to put your stuff away and just enjoy the experience. And so I'm, I'm trying to, to teach myself that as well. Yeah, experience life for sure. Take in the moment, enjoy it, because it, it looks very different through your own eyes than it does constantly yeah. with a camera. So Dale, thanks so much again for joining us. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. And thank you, our listeners, for downloading and tuning into another episode of Big Ideas. We hope that you find some fun somewhere this summer, and hopefully it's time spent outdoors. Until next month, stay well and stay informed. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz. 